0: Namaste and good evening to all of you. This uh, satsang came a little bit unexpectedly and happily because we thought that this event was going to be ten times more noisy as it is every year. But then uh, because of the mourning year in Thailand, it got cancelled and it is reduced to a few ceremonies like this. And then uh, we reprogrammed the Q&As and the satsangs So this one is um, additional to our program. And also I didn't realize that there was no singing, that there was no kirtan and bhajan before it. So I'm sorry for the delay. I thought you'd be in uh, kirtan and bhajan. Um, I have decided for this satsang, given the fact that we are in the week immediately following the Mahashivaratri, and also given the fact that um, we are preparing for the Kashmiri Shaivism, and uh, next week I'm in the parapsychology workshop, so I'll not give satsang. I uh, think, I hope that Maha will give a satsang next week. <coughs> so I was thinking uh, at this juncture that it would be appropriate if I would uh, show you where this idea of Shiva is coming in the Tantric tradition. For many people, many of you have open heartedly come to the Uh, Kirtan and bhajan, and to the Mahashivaratri and uh, for many of you it's still a very exotic thing because uh, all this Mahashivaratri worship of Shiva sounds like it's something coming from Hinduism, it's a Hindu tradition, then you are coming from the West with your ideas about God, religion and others then you are coming and suddenly you start celebrating some Hindu deities. It's exotic and you can say, well, I was playful enough to try it, to do it. But then, in the last instance, for many people, things cannot go beyond a certain level because it feels awkward, it feels weird. While um, all the religions and the metaphysics in the world, they have a rationale. They are coming from some very clear symbols, archetypes, and ideas. Uh, In the metaphysics accepted by the yogis, by the tantrics, there are some very beautiful points, and I would like tonight to make you understand exactly where those ideas are coming from. And in this way you can see, you can understand a little bit more, because it's not just uh, normally anthropologically, materialistically, we tend to consider that everything is arbitrary, that religion is the invention of man, and man invents all sorts of bullshit religions, and religions are delusive to a certain extent, and uh, then automatically you can kill all the religious feelings in the human being by this materialistic, skeptical, cynical approach. I would like to share with you how some of these ideas came in the Vedic culture and how from the Vedic culture they came to yoga so that you can practically derive some conclusions and also some inspiration. The first thing is that exception made perhaps of Buddhism, but even Buddhism does it in a funny way, I'll get back to that in a minute, exception made of Buddhism, all the religions of the world they have a tendency of personifying things which are greater than man, things which are of divine nature. This personification is a very tricky thing, because uh, anthropologists say that, oh, people took some archetype and then they turned it into God. Either God is the Jehovah of the Jews, Christians, Muslims. So, um, fact is that this is a shamanic tendency. In shamanism, you would take forces of nature and you'd personify them. Like Agni, the god of fire, becomes a person. Fire, the fire element, becomes a spirit. That's very difficult to understand. Because according to a pantheistic understanding of the universe, there is a divinity, there is spirit in everything. Consciousness is omnipresent. And then, if everything is conscious, you remember, all of you who studied the first level in Agama, that the sun is not only a ball of hydrogen. The sun, from the standpoint of the shamans, in the last 5,000 years of human history, the sun is a person. Either you call him Ra, like the Egyptians did, or you call him Suryadeva, like the Vedics do, or you call him Apollon, like the Greek tradition, the Greek mythology did. Whichever way, in whichever tradition you go, you have the sun as a person. So, the shamanic view is a bit crazy, because the shamanic view says you can talk to the sun. And if the sun is a person, he might even react to what you talk, which is crazy. Can there be a cloudy day and then the sun removes the clouds and shines on you, one kilometer around you there is sunshine, the sun is friends with you? This is the idea from shamanism and animism. In all the shamanic and animic societies of this world, The elements of nature are personified. There are earthquakes because there are some... There was a movie, a crazy movie, a Hollywood movie some 20 years ago about some worms going through the earth and producing earthquakes and tremors. That is a belief which the Tibetans are still holding today. When there is an earthquake, scientists would say a tectonic plates which are moving Tibetan shamans would say it's some spirits in the earth. Not physical spirits like a snake or a dragon moving. Those spirits are subtle, but they can still produce physical effects. And thus, <coughs> shamanism says, either we talk with water, or either we deal with water, with fire, with wind, with earth, with whatever element of nature, There are always spirits Of that element. And on top of those spirits. There is a king of those spirits. Like there are many fire spirits. And in the western shamanic magic. In the Celtic tradition and the others. They were called salamanders. Salamanders are the spirits of fire. But there is a king of the salamanders. Which is Agni or Tejas. The god of fire. The fire element itself. So in mythology and in shamanism. There are whole hierarchies of invisible beings, exactly as uh, Hamlet says in his monologue, when he says there are more things between heaven and earth than meet the eye. It's not only God and us. It's not only us and the cosmic consciousness. Exactly as the jungle is full of animals, the invisible universe is full of spirits, it's full of intelligences, Not all of them are in a physical body right now. Some of them can be. For example, the medieval shamans considered, and they used it actively, they considered that the bee houses are spirits of fairies, that they can be fairies without a body, and they interact with you energetically and telepathically by resonance. And there can be fairies which came to the physical world as to take a body. And then the fairy is the bee house. All those 6,000 bees are the cells of one entity. Each bee is not an entity. Each bee is a part of an entity. And the heart, the jivatman, for those of you who did the level 4, 5, 6 in Agama, the jivatman, like the self, the spirit... Of that bee house is the queen, the queen bee. And thus, you can interact with the bee house. For example, in the medieval times, they used the bee houses instead of of a refrigerator, because there were no refrigerators. And when you cut a big animal, you had way more meat than you could use. So how did you conserve the meat? You conserved it with bee houses. You put the meat in a special room with openings and inside the room you put a bee family, a bee house. And the bees would sterilize everything and in this way they would protect the meat. And the flies and other animals would not dare to go in there to lay their eggs because of the bees protecting everything. So they used as a communication like the fairies help us in the food industry. So... This is the shamanic view, and it's very, very vast. According to the shamanic view, the sun and the moon and the elements and other things of nature are beings. This is a very peculiar thing, which basically says you can connect with things. Like, how do we connect with the wind? Can we deal with the wind? Even today? If tomorrow there comes a hurricane in Copangan, It's not an area of hurricanes, so fortunately we don't have hurricanes here. But if it would be, what can we do? We can do nothing. If a tornado or a hurricane is coming, how do we interact with the wind? Did the modern science learn how to control the wind? Not really. Of course, there are palliative solutions. Like we could make some screens against the wind... We could do, but ultimately, no. And therefore, the shaman said, we can talk to the spirits of the wind. And if we make a deal with them, then the wind miraculously will bypass us, will go around us as by a miracle. Because we paid the toll. We made a deal. This is shamanism. Shamanism and animism are attempts of controlling and connecting with the forces of nature By humanizing them. Scientists who don't humanize the wind, they say, what's the wind? The wind is the displacement of air from a high-pressure zone to a low-pressure zone. Does that make you capable to control it? Not really. Well, shaman said we can approach in another way. We can consider the wind a god, and then we can talk to this god and see what it wants from us. And if we make a bargain then the wind will be friendly to us. The sun will be friendly to us. The sea, the ocean, will be friendly to us. And so on and so forth. That's where shamanism is coming from. That's why shamanism says, to know the wind, you don't need quantum mechanics and rocket science. And it's not brain surgery. To control the wind, you just need to approach it personally. Like, talk to the wind. Find out who the wind is and talk to the wind and make a deal. Of course, I'm not going into details because all these shamanism and animism and so on, they are based on processes which are related to magic, like what kind of deal, how do the shamans do something so some entities give them rain, the rain makers, you know, how to make rain. I'm not going to go into the details because it's far from the subject which I want to approach with you tonight. But before going into Shiva and Shakti and all those things, which are essential in the Tantric tradition, before that you have to understand the basics of the shamanic view of the world. Because the Vedic tradition and Hinduism, they found out that if I'm telling you there exists a universal consciousness... That universal consciousness is beyond space, beyond time. So I cannot describe it. I cannot name it. It's beyond the mind. The mind is here and the consciousness is here. So it's beyond the mind. And that consciousness, therefore, you can't even think about it. You can't imagine it. It cannot be embraced by your mind. So there exists a universal consciousness which is transcendental Beyond space and time, perfect, immutable, infinite, and everything. And you can't even think about it. Your your thought cannot hope to understand that consciousness. And it's a sort of a transcendental reality. Again, absolute, eternal, infinite, and all that. This becomes like a very sterile philosophy. Like, what can I do with that? Nothing, really. I not like, can I love? Uh, Let's call that cosmic consciousness, like a Greek philosopher would have done. We call it the Absolute, with a capital A. Uh, The Absolute. Yearning for the Absolute. Reaching, worshipping the Absolute. What can you feel about the Absolute? Nothing. I mean, you can force yourself to feel something, but you can't really feel much, because the Absolute is not producing any emotion in you, and especially if you realize that there may be a few well-educated philosophers and thinkers, maybe a hundred in a generation in a country, who can think about the absolute, and then there is 99.999% of the population who just drinks their beer and eats their sausages, and understands nothing about the absolute. They are concerned with the oxen cart, which brings the hay from the fields where they labor, daily life, children, cats, dogs, food, and you know, now you come and talk about the absolute. Normal people cannot, even if a hundred philosophers can relate intellectually to the absolute, for the other people this image is too abstract. And then the theologians and the philosophers, they felt that if you want Tom, Dick, and Harry from your village to pray to the Absolute, you have to give a face, a name. You have to humanize the Absolute so that people can say, I love this God. I don't love that God and I'm a bit afraid of it, but I love that one. Like Then we start having reactions, emotions, because we personify them. That's why If we can personify the sun and the moon and the wind and the fire, then we can personify anything. For example, in India, those goddesses that you see in the corners, they are the personification of something. That one, which is a terrible one, is the personification of... Is she still there? She's not there. Okay, it's stolen by our mystical dancers. So... um, That one which was there and which in a month's time will probably be there is called Kali and is nothing else but time. Time. The famous time about which uh, Albert Einstein meditated and tried to find... Not everybody is Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein visualized himself on top of a light beam traveling at light speed through the universe for about nine years. Before, every day, until... He got an idea and he said, whoa, that became the theory of relativity. That's one person in a generation. Albert Einstein, when he was teaching the theory of relativity in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, he said openly, he said, I don't think there are 10 people on the face of the earth who really understand what I mean. Like everybody can understand the mathematics because the mathematics is quite simple in the theory of relativity. But he said, I don't think people can see it. They, comes, they talk about it and they say, wow, Mr. Albert Einstein, Professor Einstein, theory of relativity. But that's just without understanding what it actually says. So, because of this, if we want to understand time, like, hey, what is time? Everybody gets old because of time. You hate it. That's why time is really nasty. No, that's why time is presented like a black goddess full of blood and so on. Every woman who sees her first wrinkles starts hating time. And when you think it's going to kill you in 20, 30, 40 years, then you hate it and fear it even more. And even when you build the Eiffel Tower, you know that in a gazillion of years it's going to be down, rusty, dead. Time is killing even the Eiffel Tower. Even the pyramids of Egypt are being turned presently into sand because of time. So, time became a goddess in India, black, full of blood, a killer, with a severe head in her hand, like a trophy, and she is frightening. Who can look in the eyes of time? Where will you be in 200 years from now? No Time, like many of you have ambitions, oh, I'm trading stocks on Wall Street, I have a house in Greece, I am doing this, I'm... You won't have it. In 200 years, it will be gone. Bye-bye. You are a loser. Whatever you build now, it's not going to last. Hate to disappoint you. The goddess of time is dancing a dance of destruction. Everything gets destroyed. I am an Israeli patriot, long live Israel. In a gazillion years, Israel will be fucked, will not exist. It's just a matter of time before Israel disappears from the face of earth. Not, I'd have nothing against Israel. Greece will disappear. Thailand will disappear. Australia will disappear. Everything will disappear. Just given enough time. Therefore, time is terrible. And the Indians, to make Tom, Dick and Harry from the village understand that, they created a frightening goddess who personifies time. If you are as educated and as smart as Albert Einstein, then please visualize it scientifically and get to the theory of relativity. If you are part of the 99.99% of the population who can't understand the theory of relativity, then worship time as a goddess. There is a shamanic way of connecting with time, by giving to time an anthropomorphic symbol, a human form, and then interacting with it like, I love time. For example, Ramakrishna, the great Bengali yogi, he loved Kali. He was in love with Kali. All his life, he worshipped Kali, and he behaved like she was his mother. All the time, his mother was Kali. He had a human relationship with the goddess. Nobody ever caught Ramakrishna telling the slightest lie. Ramakrishna was candid as a child. One of the most wonderfully candid, simple, wonderful yogis of India. And Ramakrishna claimed that in the intimate moments, Kali appeared to him materialized in the physical body and that he could feed her sweets. He had sweets... And he would put them in the mouth of Kali. Exactly like a child gives a piece of chocolate to his mommy. And then she would feed him. Like he had a physical love relationship with time. Which for other people doesn't mean anything. Well, Ramakrishna loved time like his mother. And had a physical relationship with it. That's the magic of shamanism. For rational people, it sounds like madness. And it sounds like... A hoax, and it sounds like frightening. Like if it's true, it's like I don't know if I want to try this thing, you know, if I want to go there. Because it's like if you go there, you're not a normal human being anymore. If you spend five hours with the goddess of time putting chocolate in her mouth, then you are not a Tom Dick and Hari anymore. And Ramakrishna was not a Tom Dick and Hari anymore, he was something else. He was one of the great luminaries of his century. So, that's the shamanic angle. The shamanic angle says you don't need to know relativity, theory of relativity. Every human being has a heart and soul, and intuitively, instinctively, emotionally, you can relate to the sun, to the wind, to the water element, and to different things from the universe. Some people dislike this, and they are afraid of it, and I can understand that. When I was 16 years old, I was an atheistic student in science, and I thought that anything religious was bullshit, and the sign of a retarded mind, and a sort of a primitivism, and a lack of education. Therefore, I've been there, and because I've been there, I can understand all my students, Who are coming and feeling awkward. And the thing like Mahashivaratri, at least when you come to the first level, in the first level you do yoga, there is circulation of energy, there are chakras, like things sound very engineering. Like when you jump into Mahashivaratri, it's like, oh my god, this looks like a Hindu temple or something. You know, it's like, what am I doing here? You know, what is all this about? (coughs) So I understand how for some human beings, they can accept the scientific thing, like I can meditate that I am time or light speed for nine years. And nobody considers that abnormal. The Gedanken experiment of Albert Einstein has become a staple in science. Like you can do some experiments in your mind, like Einstein did. He didn't need a laboratory for that. There was no laboratory where he could have done that. So in his mind... He just imagined for nine years, every day, hours in a row, that he's flying on a light beam. So, for some people, that is okay. But visualizing time in front of you, like a black goddess with four arms, with fangs, and with blood on her chest, that's a no-no. It's like, oh, uh, that's a bit too much. That sounds like a cult, or something like this. So, that's one of the keys for understanding most of these theologies of the world, including the Hindu one. Now I'm coming to what I wanted to say. All this was a sort of a preparatory introduction. The the Vedic religion, the origins of Hinduism, the old Hinduism, they simply said, if we talk about an absolute consciousness that is the creator, the author, the background of everything... People will say, Right. Yeah. Mm. But there is nothing to connect. And then they decided that unlike in Christianity, Judaism others where God is just one thing, they simply said, Let's let's show how God is a bit lower. Not we don't go to the top of the pyramid. We go one centimeter below the top of the pyramid, where it's not the top. It's already four things coming out of the top of the pyramid, four sides of the pyramid. And therefore, they simply said, as you go a bit lower, you start seeing that the divine becomes many. Instead of one, we start having diversification. And in Hinduism, for reasons of numerology, they stopped at number three. They liked very much the triadic mysticism. And therefore, they said, God has three faces. It's still God the one, but imagine God divided in three, which is impossible to imagine again with the mind, because the infinite divided in three gives three pieces, which are each one of them infinite. I don't know if you ever studied a little bit the mathematics of infinite, but infinite has very strange rules. If you divide infinite in two, like the numbers, the numbers in mathematics. They are infinite. And then you divide them into the negative numbers below zero and the positive numbers above zero. Guess what? The positive numbers and the negative numbers are also infinite. It's an infinite series of numbers. So the infinite divided by two, it's still infinite. It gives two infinites. And if you sum them, infinite plus infinite is infinite. So it's not like with the numbers. The infinite has other rules of mathematics. So different the rules of mathematics are that the Hungarian mathematician Georg Kantor studied the mathematics of infinite and he even conceived the concept of second degree infinite, which is infinite at the infinite potency. And then he went into a mental hospital. He lost his mind because of dabbling too much In a place where the mind simply cannot go. The mind can't follow. It's against the common sense of the mind because we are dealing with things which transcend the mind. So, the Hindus divided the infinite in three. And they simply said, what does God do? All this this supreme consciousness, let's identify it by some of its actions. Well, one of the things which the infinite consciousness do is that it creates the world. Not like in a Bible that it created the world 7,200 years ago. That's bullshit for village people, for uneducated people. The creation is happening every minute and every second. Like in your body. In your body now while we speak, there are new cells being born and there are old cells which die. You are being born and dying as we speak. So creation is not happening 7,000 years ago, and then the creator is unemployed and just watches the universe. The creation happens all the time. We don't understand cosmologically, astronomically. Maybe it's because black holes are sucking the matter, and then supernovas explode and generate matter. We don't fully understand what the equivalences are, but fact is that the Hindus said there definitely is a part, one share of God which deals with this creation. Constantly things come from the spirit and they become matter. It's like materialization. That some things are materialized. That part was called the creator and in India, that's the famous name of Brahma. Brahma is the creator, means the creator. Brahma is one third of God. That third of God, which deals with the creation. The second third of God was called, in the old Indian times, Vishnu. As I wrote them there on the board, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Vishnu. Vishnu is traditionally translated in English as the preserver. Like, if there is a force which creates... And in the end, you can infer immediately if there is a force that destroys, one that creates and one that destroys, in between them, there has to be one which keeps the balance, one which keeps things running. That's Vishnu. Vishnu is the Lord of preservation, is God, is still God, but in another function. It's another part It's another ministry of God. Is God as... Preserver of the universe. And finally, the third part of God was called Shiva, and Shiva is the one that dematerializes things. If Brahma materializes, Vishnu keeps it, Shiva dematerializes. <clears throat> In this way, the name which is used often is that Shiva is the destroyer of the universe or something similar. That name is very slippery because many modern people with hooliganic and violent tendencies like the football hooligans from England or something, if you'll tell them, be a real destroyer tonight, they will understand to go and beat people up and break windows. I'm not talking about the hooliganic destruction. That's why Shiva is a destroyer in the meaning that he dissolves everything. He is an an, an annihilator, a terminator, a sort of a dematerializer. He dissolves the universe. So we use the name destroyer, but with caution, because destroyer has collateral meanings in English and many other languages, which are meaning chaotic, gratuitous violence. And there are babas in India who go naked with a trident in their hand or something and they hit people on the street and they smoke dope and they behave aberrantly and absurdly and when people confront them they say, I'm Shiva the destroyer. Somebody should kick you in the balls and lock you in a prison because that's not what Shiva does. Shiva is not a hooligan. Hooliganism is not Shiva gratuitous violence and destruction has nothing to do with Shiva. So this idea is unfortunately often misunderstood and misused. And that's why I use this term with great caution and only with uh, profuse explanations because destruction means dematerialization. It means simply dissolving. Taking matter back into spirit where it came from. Brahma made spirit matter, and Shiva takes matter and sends it back into spirit, so the Hindus considered that if you give three faces to God, then you can understand. For example, one of you is a very creative person. Creative can mean one of you is a woman who had 11 children. Hey, that's creativity. You have created 11 human beings. And then that human being will say, I shudder when I think about Shiva. Shiva is too scary for me because I like to create. Or, maybe you are the kind of person who builds the pyramids or the Eiffel Tower. Or maybe you are a painter or a writer. You are a creator. You are the kind of person through whom spirit becomes concrete things like a novel, a painting, a building, a something. Eleven children something. And then, such a person is attuned more with the creator. And in this way, they start appearing preferences. Oh, I love Brahma. I pray to Brahma for more creativity, because I am a composer of music. And I want Brahma to give me creativity, so I can compose more music. In the moment when we, from a God which is all and everything, and we don't understand anything, We start saying, part of that God is creator. Part of that God is preserver. Part of that God is destructor. Then we start having preferences. Which means, we can connect emotionally with them. We humanized God. And now we can have some relationship. And thus, this was where it all started. And in this triad, then... The Tantric tradition added the Shaktis of those three, which I wrote there. I'm not going right now into it. Uh, What I'm trying to say, actually, at this point is that the yogis, the spiritual people of India, then they started saying, okay, so what do we get out of this? Well, we defined this. There is a river, if you imagine spirit and the world which in Tantra are Shiva and Shakti. But that's confusing as names. That's why I wanted to clarify this confusion tonight so that you know the Tantric linguistics because there is a, there is a big trick somewhere there which you'll discover in a few minutes. Um, there is a river which flows from spirit into matter. That's Brahma. Brahma materializes spirit. There is a river which goes from matter up into spirit. We could say there is a river which comes from Sahasrara to Muladhara, and there is a river which goes from Muladhara to Sahasrara. If I am a yogi, if I am one of the old-fashioned, fundamentalistic, completely typical yogi, the yogis wanted to reach pure spirit especially in the ascetic forms of yoga, and there are plenty of ascetic forms of yoga, just like in original Buddhism, yogis wanted to go to nirvana. Samsara, this is samsara, this is samsara, samsara should die, should be abandoned. Nirvana is the target. If you want to put it in a hooliganic language, samsara sucks, and nirvana rocks. Nirvana is the goal. Right? So samsara, who cares about samsara? Samsara is the boogeyman. Samsara is the enemy which prevents you from meditating, from reaching wisdom and all that. So, if I'm a yogi and I know that there is somewhere there a river which flows like this and there is somewhere there a river which flows like this. Where do I go? Always there. Because the yogis they didn't want to make 11 children. The yogis wanted to leave their body through the crown chakra and go in nirvana and never come back. And thus, it's obvious that even in the old Hinduism, the favorite of the yogis was always Shiva. Shiva, 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 because Shiva is the one who takes you from Muladhara to Sahasrara. Shiva is like the rising of Kundalini. Shiva is the one which takes your body and dematerializes it, and in the end, you are pure Atman, you are pure spirit. So from the very beginning, this Shiva aspect of God was the darling of the spiritual practitioners. Here is one interesting fact, which I read in books. I read it in serious, good quality books, but I still cannot vouch for it 100%, because you can read bullshit in books as well. Apparently, In the whole of India, there is one single, one, just one temple dedicated to Brahma. Like, nobody in in Hindu religions cares about Brahma. And they made one temple just to demonstrate that there is nothing wrong with Brahma. And that Brahma is not some negative thing or something. But, most of the Indian sadhus and Brahmins... They say, yeah, there is Brahma, he does his job, he creates the universe, and you know what, I'm not very much interested. Like, salutation to Brahma, Om nama Brahma, bye-bye. It's like, that's my relationship with Brahma. You know, it's like, I'm not really interested in Brahma. Why? Because Brahma produces matter, not spirit. So. Again, you can say, but what if I'm a normal person and if I just want to build something to start a family, I want to be the patriarch of a thousand grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Yeah, Brahma is your body. Pray to Brahma. Brahma is the one that materializes things in the world for you. The funny thing is that most of the yogis and rishis of the Vedic tradition, they didn't want to produce things here. They wanted to produce things here. So, here was just like, okay, I'm in a physical body on the planet Earth. Clock is ticking. I'm going to die at some point. I better use my time well. Let's meditate. You know, it's like, what to do? The Indians never wanted to build Eiffel Towers and pyramids and anything. Late in the history of India, you have the temples, the tantric temples of India, and then... Things like the Taj Mahal and this, which are built by Muslims, by the way. They are not built by Hindus. Taj Mahal is built by the imperial Muslim family of the medieval India. So what I'm trying to say is, uh, there is in the Hindu asceticism a sort of nihilistic term, like exactly like Buddha, like go to Nirvana and don't look back. Some of you here in this hall who are crazy fanatics of spirituality you can understand that very well and you share that opinion. Some of you who just came to Agama and are looking cautiously, if you are getting yourself into some sect in the Thai jungle, uh, you are like, well, I don't know, it's like this guy is a bit too extreme. and You have to find out. It's your life and you have to find out what you want to live your life for if you are like the rishis or like who you are and what do you want to have in 20 years from now. If you want to have what Ramakrishna had, then you have to do what Ramakrishna did. If you are not interested in Ramakrishna's model, then let's see in whose model are you interested. Like, how do you want your life to be, and how do you want to die when you finish your life, and all that. I cannot deviate there. Those are other big subjects of discussion. So, back to our story. From the very beginning, the yogis loved Shiva. That's why traditionally, Shiva appeared as the Lord, like, who invented the headstand. The headstand which brings your muladhara into sahasrara, because you put your body like this and all your energy flow. Who could have invented the headstand? Shiva, long live Shiva, right? The lord of the yogis, you know. Who invented all these exercises which make your energy go in sahasrara? Sahasrara. Shiva, of course, that's the lord of the yogis, you know, because that's the tendency. So from the very beginning, Shiva became the darling of the yogis in India and of all the spiritual seekers. There exists in India, and it's the majority, there exists a sort of spirituality which is mild. Instead of being crazy, like I'm going to do three hours of headstand every day. Hey, not many people. There are a hundred people today on earth that can do one hour of headstand non-stop. There are not more than a hundred people on the face of this earth that can do that. The rest of the people, if you go in India, there are 500 million Indians who live, cook food, have children, have a little cat, they drive a motorcycle, they do whatever. They don't want to go in Sahasrara and disappear in Nirvana. They are without any offense, because it's not meant as an offense, they are spiritually more like lukewarm. Like, yeah, I want some spirituality, but not like, Bruh. No, it's like, take it easy. I want some take it easy spirituality. Good. The god for that is Vishnu. That's what Vishnu is for. Vishnu is 50% Shiva, 50% Brahma. Half creation, half dissolution. Keep it in the middle. That's why Vishnu is very much a family god in India. The familists, the people that have a job, the people that have a business, the people that are unfolding a normal life, for them they say Vishnu is good enough. Vishnu is the preserver of the universe. Vishnu is that aspect that has creation, dissolution, whenever he needs to help you with this, whenever he needs to help you with this. That's also very much the concept of the Christian god, and of the, the Judeo-Islamic God. It's a God which favors, uh, you know, prosperity, comfort, family, life should go on, multiply and flourish, and all that kind of stuff. While for Buddha, there is no multiply and fall, flourish. No, Buddha wants to go in Sahasrara and reach Nirvana. And he is not interested in middle-of-the-way things. So, even in spirituality, there exist more mild approaches and there exist more radical approaches. Usually, the radical ones, they go on the side of Shiva, because, as I explained, Shiva is the one that dematerializes. So, that's how the situation started in Hinduism. And that's why Shiva became a powerful symbol for the yogis. There are a few other um, elements to it, such as even the name Shiva is a name which shows something wonderful. The, the qualities of God as defined in the Vedic tradition are that this Supreme Consciousness, which we can call it Paramatman or Parabrahman or whatever, that Supreme Consciousness, the Absolute, is, can be characterized by the meditators, the people who have seen it, not with your eyes, the people who have seen it, by direct experience, by direct resonance, they characterized it by three words. Shivam, Satyam, Sundaram. Shivam means auspicious, beneficent. It's like in Christianity when you say, May the good Lord have... Why do you have to say the good Lord? Why don't you say may the Lord? Isn't it implicit? No, not really. Because the Jews often were afraid of their God. They said God is angry. God is vengeful. If God gets pissed off at you, you are mashed potatoes. You know, it's like, don't... So, they didn't even dare to say the name of God. They say, don't pronounce the name of God because maybe you mispronounce it and that angers God. And there were other Kabbalistic reasons. I cannot go into the whole story there. So, instead of this, you say, may the good Lord. Like, let's take from God... The Father, the loving Father, who will always be forgiving, loving, moderate, who will never burn you down and crush you and so on. So, there is this idea that God has a side which is beneficent. For example, Saint Mary of Egypt spent 30-something years alone in the desert, naked in the desert of Palestine, she, her, her clothes got lost in 30 years, and she was parched by the sun. Those of you who lived in or who have been in Palestine, Egypt, you know how the sun can be there. This woman lived naked in the desert for more than 30 years. And when she was found by a guy, Zosimas, he asked her to bless him. And the blessing which Mary of Egypt, we have it in our theory of the blessing. Those of you who learned the blessing in Agama, reread it because this story is there. Mary of Egypt, when she started her blessing, naked, wild woman in the desert, great ascetic, making miracles. When Zosima found her, he said, let's pray. And when he opened his eyes during the prayer, she was levitating one meter above the ground. That's how strong her prayer was. She was flying in the air because of the prayer itself. So Mary of Egypt was a titanic woman, was a force of nature. And then he asked her, he said, bless me. And he said, no, you bless me because you are a priest. She had the respect. She was very humble. She said, I am a woman. I'm not a priest. If you want, you bless me. And he said, are you joking? I'm a priest by the clothes. But you are the miracle of the desert, you know. You are the real deal. So cut the bullshit. You bless me. You know, because, and then Mary of Egypt, raised her hands to heaven, which she was doing naked hours every day, and she said, Blessed be God, who loves human beings, and wishes for their salvation. Like God is not indifferent, according to Mary of Egypt. God is not vengeful. He is not angry. Mary of Egypt says, Blessed be God who loves people. God loves you. Mary of Egypt says that God loves you. Even those who are in prison. Even those who killed other people. Even though God loves people, not some people. He loves people. And second, He wishes for their salvation. That means any one of you wants to reach salvation, God wishes for it. You are on the same page with God. That's why God made you. That's the purpose. That's the secret purpose. So God is actually positive. God has an interest. But He cannot force it. He has to let it flow in a natural way. We can't go in that direction. That probably you learn more about in the metaphysical workshop and in other where we can talk about the condition of freedom. What means the actual condition of spiritual freedom. If God would force you to evolve, then you wouldn't be free. And you cannot obtain freedom from a condition which contains no freedom, exactly as you cannot stop violence by using more violence. You have, as Mahatma Gandhi says, you have to be the change that you want to see in the world. If God wants to make you free, then He has to give you freedom. And that freedom is very dangerous because you can do lots of stupid things because of the freedom. So, back to our story. Therefore, Shivam, that God is auspicious, God is not a 50-50 indifferent spirit who looks and says, let's see what they do. No, God is Shivam, beneficial. Shiva, therefore, is a very beautiful name because it means the beneficent. It means the one who is auspicious. Shivam, Satyam, Satyam means truth, as you remember from the lectures in the first level. So God is the truth. Absolutely speaking, because God is the reality. So, Shivam, Satyam, Sundaram. Sundari, like in the name of Tripura Sundari, one of the goddesses of India, means beautiful. Like Rumi, in one of his poems, where he experienced a state of ecstasy, and he says, I wish I could see you with a hundred eyes. It's exactly like when a man makes love to a woman, and says, I can't get enough of you. You know, I desire you in every pore of my being. It's like this endless thing. Exactly the same is with God, only it's not a sexual desire. It's a loving desire. It's like God is so amazingly beautiful that's like, I wish I could see you with a hundred eyes. I wish I could eat you with my eyes. I wish it's it's such an amazing thing that... So, Shivam, Satyam, Sundaram. God is... Auspicious, good, truth, and beauty. And thus, for the yogis, it was double. You know, like we are having Shiva, who is the resorber, the one who resorbs the universe into spirit, the destroyer, if you wish. And Shiva is the auspicious side of God, the one that gives salvation. And thus, the name Shiva became very powerful already in the Vedic tradition. There is a scene which always gives me goosebumps when I see it. There is a movie which we have in the Agama Cinema Club. It's not often seen because it's five hours long or maybe five hours and a half long. It's called Mahabharata. It's produced by Peter Brooks some 30 years ago. And it's actually a sort of a television theater. It's like a theater adapted for television. And it's a wonderful movie five hours long. It's a bit tedious, slow, because Mahabharata is a huge compendium and so on. But it's anybody who knows spirituality and who knows yoga and sees it, gets a lot from it. And you can see it five times over five years in a row, like every year, see it once a year. And you'll learn more and more from it, because Mahabharata is one of the old texts of wisdom. And in this text, there is a paragraph where Arjuna is going to the Himalayas, in search of the absolute weapon, Pashupata, which sounds almost like a nuclear weapon of today, the the ultimate weapon. And he's searching for it. And the other guys, the enemies, they have a sort of magic television. They make some magic and they can do some remote viewing and they follow uh, Arjuna like on a television screen. And at some point Arjuna has a conflict with a hunter appearing from nowhere. Arjuna is the consummate warrior, the perfect archer. And there is this dude looking strange who says, no, no, I hunted that boar. It's mine. And they start quarreling. And Arjuna says, if you touch my boar, I'm going to put an arrow through your head, you insolent idiot. No, you don't know who you are talking with. And the guy keeps on and then he goes. And then Arjuna stretches one of his heroic arrows, zap, shoots. And that guy catches all the three ar- he shoots three arrows in his most masterly way that guy is completely immune he is way superior to arjuna and then he touches arjuna on the forehead and arjuna can see he can see that he is shiva it was shiva disguised as a hunter who comes to test him and then shiva says you shoot you shot three arrows at me i really like you, you know choose for boon and of course he says give me pashupata and so on. But in the moment when he discovers, that's the moment which I like very much, a very mystical moment, he discovers now it's Shiva. And the guys who remote view him, they also can see that it's actually Shiva. Both Arjuna, who is a king and a warrior, and those guys who are nasty kings and warriors, instantaneously kneel. They fall on their knees instantaneously. They say Shiva. You know, like, nobody stands in front of Shiva. You know, it's like, it's, nobody would be, because Shiva is the destroyer. You know, it's like, Shiva can terminate anything. You know, and it's like, so people had a formidable respect towards Shiva. Like, Shiva is one of the ultimate forces of God. So, this is how Shiva came to be in the world of spirit. And now comes the revolution, which I promised, and which is the turning point and which very people, very few people know. The Tantric tradition, when looking upon the nature of reality, they have said, yeah, there is Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and all that. It's a, it makes sense. But we can look at reality, zoom back the camera, and divide the reality in another way. Instead of dividing it in three aspects of God, we can divide it just in two aspects of God. The transcendental, which is pure spirit, and the immanent, which is nature, matter, mother nature. And these two aspects were called in the ancient yogic philosophies Purusha and Prakriti. Purusha means exactly that, spirit, and Prakriti means nature. So spirit and nature, which you have in Christianity, you have in the Greek philosophy, you have in the the famous distinction that the universe is made of two things. One which is transcendental, immeasurable, beyond space and time, spirit. And one which is matter, which we deal with it all day long. We live in a universe of matter and all this is matter. Even our astral body and even our mental body is still matter. It's energy. These two things were called, first, in the Tantric tradition, by the names, instead of Purusha and Prakriti, which are abstract names, they wanted to give them a face so that you can relate to them. And this was, instead of calling them Yang and Yin, like in Taoism, they said nobody can love Yin or love Yang. Because Yang and Yin sounds like totally abstract. When you look at the Yin-Yang symbol, you don't feel love for it. So if you want to love this, you have to give it a human personality. And they give to Yang and Yin, to the cosmic and telluric, to the transcendental spirit and the immanent matter, they gave them the names of Shiva and Shakti. Masculine and feminine. This time they were not three. They were just two. So this division was even more radical. It was like the basic division. After the one, the next number which comes is two. There is no number between one and two. We are talking about whole numbers, full numbers. One, two. So the divine is either one or it's two. Or it can be three, but then that's lower. Two is closer to one than three. Two is the first division. So when the divine becomes two, then it's spirit and matter. Shiva and Shakti. This is where the problem comes. Pay attention. The problem comes because Shiva is called all the upper floor. All, the, all those three are now called Shiva. And all those lower ones, Sarasvati Devi, Lakshmi Devi, and Parvati Devi, now they are called Shakti. It's okay to call it Shakti because the name is not used. But the domain, so to use an internet simile, the domain shiva.com was taken already. It was used by the Shiva from Hinduism. In Tantra, they start using the same name with a different meaning. Shiva doesn't mean Shiva. Shiva means Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva and everything on that upper floor. This is typically Indian, that the same name will be used for two different things, that two different names will be used for one and the same thing. And it produces endless confusion. I often say that the Hindus would have needed a German or a Swiss engineer as part of their history to make a bit of order because Hinduism is coming from the heart but it's very, very chaotic when it comes to order and organization. So, how was, how would that be solved? So, for, for the tantrics, Shiva doesn't mean the same thing as for the regular Hindus. That's what people don't understand. And because they preserve the same symbolism, the same images, because it was very difficult to create other statues, other paintings, they piggybacked on it, but they changed the meaning of it. So the outer symbolism remained, but the meaning has changed. And very few people are having a foot in the Hindu tradition and a foot in the Tantric tradition, so that they can see the difference and the contradiction. For example, Abhinava Gupta, in one of his odes to Shiva, he says, Glory be to Shiva, the Lord of the Universe, like we did in the Mahashivaratri, Glory be to Shiva, the Lord of the Universe, Who creates, preserves, and destroys countless universes. What? Shiva creates countless universes. We thought Brahma did. Now you want to steal the job of Brahma? You want to infringe on the preserves? But we thought Vishnu preserves. That's because Shiva about whom Abhinavagupta talks is not the same Shiva about which the Hindus were talking 2,000 years ago. It's the same name applied for two different personalities of God and that's wrong and that's why in Hin- in India there have appeared two solutions for this conundrum for those who most people don't care they just have the religion of their parents in their village and they do it and they don't ask metaphysical questions. but for the university professors and other people who realize the dilemma then there appeared two solutions. one solution is please, We in Tantra love the name Shiva and it fits so well with Shakti. Shiva, Shakti. And we love it. Shiva is the arch man and Shakti is the arch woman. And uh, therefore, you Hindu people, could you please choose another name? Like Shiva has a thousand and eight names. Could you please use another name and not over... Like leave us the name Shiva and then you call him. So in many traditions you see Brahma, Vishnu, Rudra, like on the chakras. When you'll study the chakras, you'll see that the god of Muladhara is called Brahma, the god of Zvadhisthana is Vishnu, and the god of Manipura is Rudra. Brahma, Vishnu, Rudra. Rudra Shiva, because Rudra also works. It's another name of Shiva. Shiva has a thousand and eight pseudonyms, and therefore he can use another one. Or another one which is often used, Mahadeva. Brahma, Vishnu, Mahadeva. And then the stupid tantrics they can use Shiva and Shakti as much as they want. That solution works sometime in an intelligent environment where people can be informed. It can work, but not always. Because, of course, it's very difficult to make 500 billion, million, whatever, Indians to give up Shiva, which they inherited in their village from their parents. And that's why... The tantrics being a more esoteric group and being much smaller in numbers, being a sort of elite society, most of them, there were some which were garbage, gutter tantrics, gutter tantrics, and they are top-notch tantrics. So those which were philosophically and metaphysically top-notch, they said, okay, we still call him Shiva, we love Shiva, it's inevitable, because the affectionate thing is there, the bhakti is there, but, you know what, we'll use another name. Okay, we will choose one of those 1,008 names and then we'll use ours. And you have them written there on the board, that's why they are there. Instead of Shiva and Shakti, they called it Bhairava and Bhairavi as the male and the female. So it's either Shiva and Shakti or Bhairava and Bhairavi. Bhairava and Bhairavi are the esoteric names. Only the top-notch tantrics know those names and use them. Instead of calling him Shiva, you call him, O Lord Vairava. That's what Abhinava Gupta does. He says, O Lord, being in my heart one with you, I worship you, O Bhairava, Lord of the universe. Like no Shiva. But of course, they never forgot the name Shiva, and it is used, but every time when the name Shiva is used, you have to ask yourself, is this the Hindu Shiva, or is this the Tantric Shiva? Because they mean something else. This is very important to remember, and then, indeed, for the tantrics, Shiva and Shakti were the first division. It's very difficult to understand what is beyond Shiva and Shakti, the number one. Because the number one, there is no polarity. Our brain is made of yes, no. Computers are made of zeros and ones. The whole universe is made of yin and yang. We have two hemispheres in our brain. We have two polarities in our body. Everything for us in this world is going with binary code. It's working in a yes or no thing. When something is one, like in the crown chakra, which has no polarity, then you can intuitively refer to it, but you can't really explain it. Or like what is becoming of the Christian concept of God and the devil. What is God and the devil in oneness? How do they become one? It sounds like blasphemy. It sounds like you don't even want to hear the answer to this one. It sounds like, you know, so that's why monism, oneness, is something very difficult reserved to people who go to Sahasrara. It is reserved to people like Ramakrishna and the likes of them who can actually experience this. And of course, you can do what Ramakrishna did. No, I'm not trying to scare you, saying it's it's too much. I'm simply saying that there is just perhaps a thousand people every year who discover this answer on the face of the earth. Perhaps not even a thousand people on the whole earth, in all the nations of the earth. Maybe a hundred per year, maybe ten per year who discover this. So we are talking about a very small minority. These are the people who are going for the summit of the summit of the summit. So, for the rest, therefore, the things are dualistic. And that's why we cannot understand God as one, because it's too confusing, but then we can understand God as two. When God divides in two, we have spirit and matter, we have Shiva and Shakti, we have Yang and Yin, and then you start relating to it. And that's why people's devotion goes towards the dualistic aspect of God. Because the monistic is almost impossible to relate to it. That's why the tantrics loved this model. That the universe can be seen as Purusha and Prakriti, Shiva and Shakti, Bhairava and Bhairavi. And we can start from there. That's the most essential definition of God. Those of you who are educated and want to read this in educated books, I recommend the symbology book of Professor Mircea Eliade, who wrote a famous book 50 years ago, or more, more than 50 years, probably 70 years ago, which is called exactly that, The Two and the One. There you can see a professor in the history of religions who anthropologically and metaphysically and scientifically explains in the history of humanity exactly this, two and one, seeing the supreme reality as one, which is the top of the pyramid, or as two, which is the next floor. Like, if you go one floor lower than the top, then that's the two. If you go lower, then it becomes three, four, five, a million, a gazillion. No, Like, the the lower you go in the pyramid until you get to the level of the atoms. How many atoms are there in this universe? A bazillion of gazillions of atoms. No, that's diversity. But at the top, is just one thing. From one to many. So, and, and the other way around, from multiplicity to oneness. So, this is the story about Shiva. This is who Shiva is in the Tantric tradition. Shiva in the Tantric tradition is not just the destroyer. It's all of them together, and it represents all the masculinity, all the masculine personalities of God put together, while Shakti represents all the feminine things. The Shakti is subdivided in ten, which are the ten Mahavidyas, the ten cosmic powers. Those of you who will still be here in May, if I remember correctly, in May we have the Shakti festival, and then we celebrate the ten Mahavidyas as comparison to what we did a week ago. we celebrating Shiva in his eight personalities. So Shiva and Shakti, Bhairava and Bhairavi. In this way, the tantrics liked it because it's also based on gender. In the moment when you separate things in two, automatically it corresponds to the archetype from our lives of masculine and feminine. Y chromosome and X chromosome. You know, it's in. It's embedded in the very nature of life. And thus, uh, the tantrics loved this because it reflected the love of the man for the woman, the love of the woman for the man, the attraction of yin for yang and the attraction of yang for yin, the opposites which attract each other, the complementaries which complement and Uh, make each other whole and so on. And that's why this symbol remained very powerful in the Tantric tradition. And this is the correct understanding of the Shiva and Shakti aspect as they are personified. Again, it's personification. It's something which India has inherited from uh, the shamanic part of India. They saw that it works powerfully. For example, in Buddhism, In the Theravada Buddhism, which is the Hinayana, the first Buddhism, like in Thailand, like the typical, because in Thailand you also have Chinese temples, and that's Mahayana Buddhism. So in the Hinayana Buddhism, there is no personification. The only person is Buddha. There are a few symbols of some guardians of the gate or something, but it's Buddha, 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 and everything is, if you study this metaphysics, it's very dry. In the moment when you go to a Chinese temple, there is one on this island on the next road to Chalok Lung, there you start seeing Kuan Yin, a goddess. Suddenly there is not only Buddha, there is a female, Kuan Yin, which is the Chinese equivalent of Tara, of the goddess Tara from India, the goddess of compassion. And besides Kuan Yin, then there are Lohans, and there are the five Dhyani Buddhas, which correspond to the five elements, and Suddenly, the Mahayana Buddhism is very rich. If you go in a Mahayana temple, like go to the Si temple in Penang when you do your next uh, uh, visa run, it's amazing. It's like you are in Disneyland. You know, it's a lot of characters and statues and golden things and so on. It's not sober like the Thai Buddhism. It's already added lots of characters which are worshipful. And then, if you go one step further, you go to the third major form of Buddhism which exists on the face of the earth, which is the Tibetan Buddhism, which is not even Mahayana. It's a mixture of Mahayana with a specific form of Buddhism which appeared in Tibet and which is called Vajrayana. It's the Lamaism, the Lamaic Buddhism of Tibet. And out of the three, you know, in the Lamaic, uh, in the Vajrayana, there are gods and goddesses like uh, Lamo and uh, Hayagriva and Hevajra uh, and Avalokiteshvara. And it, there it becomes a whole pantheon. And suddenly in a Buddhist, which says, don't visualize anything, there is nirvana. This dude called Shiva, he reached nirvana. Do like him. It's very dry. No emotion. But the Tibetans can bow down to Hevajra or to Avalokiteshvara and they can cry rivers of tears. The Buddhism of Tibet is with crying, with bhakti, with emotions, with puja, with uh, rituals, with magic, with, you know, suddenly you can connect with Hevajra, you can connect with uh, Kwanin, you can connect with Dhamo, you can connect with Mahakala, you can, you know, it's a different story. The Tibetan Buddhism is much closer to Hinduism and the Vedic tradition also because Tibet is so close to India. And then, of course, they consider, and the Thai Buddhists, they wouldn't like if I say this. No, but I'm not saying it. It's said by those. No, that they say that the Vajrayana Buddhist is the most effective. It has produced most saints and most enlightened beings along history. It's the one which works with the human nature. They say, we we build this kind of Buddhism because the original one was a bit too dry. And people were like, man, I'm doing some prayers and then not being touched. Not being touched enough. That's why the Tibetans claim, and again the Thais disagree with that, the Tibetans claim that their Buddhism is clearly superior to the original Hinayana Buddhism, which is kind of unevolved, according to them. That's even the Tibetans... Are practicing big-time personification. You personify. You personify the five elements by Dhyani Buddhas. There is a Dhyani Buddha called Ratna Sambhava who is the Dhyani Buddha of the earth and he is yellow in color because the earth is yellow. And he has some characteristics which are and he has a consort which is called Mamaki and so on and they are making love, they are in a Yab Yum position and so on and all that. So this is shamanism because in Tibet Buddhism encountered the local shamanism of Tibet, which was called Ben. And Bun plus Buddhism created Vajrayana. This is a shamanic Buddhism. Exactly in the same way in India. We have a shamanic Vedic tradition, which is called Tantra. And Tantra goes with personification. It thinks that you can benefit from personification more than from some dry philosophical study where we speak about the Absolute. Kali makes you shed tears, like Ramakrishna, while the Absolute doesn't make you shed any tear. And they want those tears. They want that emotion. They want that involvement. So, of course, in other religions, it's based on human characters. No, it's based on Jesus. It's based on Mary. But again, you pray to Jesus, you start crying. The emotion is there. The motivation is there. I can't understand God, but at least I know that God became a human being called Jesus. He incarnated as Jesus. And then I can love Jesus. Or I can even hate Jesus. No, but at least I can have a reaction to Jesus. So that's the principle of this shamanic thing, a personification. So this is how Shiva became to be retained in the Tantric tradition, although there is this controversy of the name, if to use Shiva or to leave it for the Vedic tradition. Uh, The crazy mystics of India, like Laleshvari and this and Bhatta Narayana, and Utpaladeva, and even Abhinavagupta and others. Abhinavagupta was more of a philosopher, aesthetician, and a more rational type. But even Abhinavagupta, of course, they wouldn't give up the name Shiva. And they still used 108 names, or a 1,000 names, Shiva, Shankara, Mahadeva, Deva Deva, and all sorts of things, because it's of devotion. You know, it's like, you cannot make me not love Shiva, simply because what I call Shiva and what they call Shiva is two slightly different things. And the heck with it, I can still call it Shiva. And guess what? I love Shiva. Either the name is totally theoretically appropriate or not, I love Shiva and that's it. So that's how the name Shiva remain, and it has these two valences in the two traditions of India, in the Vedic Hindu tradition and in the Tantric tradition. And here in Agama, being a Tantric school, we use it mostly, 99% we use it in the Tantric, meaning of Shiva and Shakti, like Purusha and Prakriti, like Bhairava and Bhairavi. But we are aware of the Hindu division in three as well. So occasionally we can make reference to things in that way as well. I hope that this explanation tonight... Um, I felt inspired that I saw so many people coming to worship Shiva in the Mahashivaratri, and I thought a little bit of clarity would be required. And uh, those of you who will have the grace to participate into the Kashmiri Shaivism workshop, which is next month, uh, you will have the, the opportunity to see exactly what the top-level tantrics like Gupta and those what they have made of this Shiva concept, how they have integrated it in the yoga practice, in the Tantric practice. Until then, have this understanding and next time when you see Shiva, try to see if that Shiva is the Hindu Shiva, the Lord of Destruction, or if that is Shiva like the masculine aspect of God, the Purusha, the Transcendental Spirit. This being said, let us stop here for tonight. Thank you all for joining and I'll see you in the coming Q and A's and satsangs.